Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and I'm very excited to bring you this episode with a man who's seen the sport from a few angles. As a rider, it became a legend of the Reading races, as well as spells with Poole, Stoke, Bellevue, Newcastle, Birmingham, Lakeside, and not least his hometown, Newport, plus in management with Birmingham and the Great Britain Under-21 setup. And currently, he's the ringmaster of Speedway's greatest show as FIM race director of the Speedway Grand Prix and Speedway of Nations series. It's my great pleasure to welcome Phil Morris to Humans of Speedway. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's great to to get you because I know that you're usually a very, very busy man. Um, well, pretty much all year, really, I guess, from uh, usually uh, April time through to the end of October. But your year has been radically different this year, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely a, a big difference, as it is for everybody in, in these tough times. But um, there is, a, as we say, a light at the end of the tunnel. So we should be getting back to partial normality in the next few weeks for myself. So I'm... Uh, I'm actually looking forward to getting back out to other tracks and yeah, it'll be nice to be back in the normal world of traveling. Uh, hopefully I stay safe. That's the main thing. But yeah, it'd be good to get back to the norm. We'll, we'll start with the present then. We'll start with what's coming up then because the, the, the obviously a bit of doubt about how it would all pan out. But now that we know that there is going to be a Grand Prix series and um, a Speedway of Nations final as well for you to get involved in, how's it all going to work uh, on a practical level for you then? Do you have to sort of go out and, and stay out in Poland and, and how's all that going to work for the riders? Yeah, well, obviously it, it's tough. Um with the current situation and uh, Poland, all respect to them for leading the way in what they're doing with their leagues and everything seems to be working reasonably well for them. So, yeah, uh, obviously a lot of people will moan that, you know, six of the eight rounds are based in Poland and it's a world championship. But unfortunately, as you know, we can't run nothing in Britain at the moment. Uh, other countries are the same. Scandinavia, we had problems with. Denmark, we had problems with. Russia, we had problems with. So, yeah, it didn't leave us with a great amount of options to, to make it a reasonable championship. Um, yeah, it, it, 
going to be similar to the Polish Speedway. Everyone will need uh, negative COVID tests before they can enter the stadiums, uh, things like that. So it, we'll have lots of things in place. Obviously, the social distance and the PPE will all be part of the part of the show. Unfortunately, now you know it's a norm to see people wearing masks and uh, that's where we'll be going. And no doubt you'll have seen how things have been going in Poland. That must have been very reassuring considering most of it is going to be happening in Poland and the Speedway European Championships have passed off well. So that must be uh, encouraging for you. Yeah, of course. You know, it's uh, as well as the Polish League, obviously the the SEC series has um, done well by getting all the events off in Poland. And uh, obviously, congratulations to Robert Lambert for winning it and also being the first rider into the 2021 Grand Prix, which is... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I think he deserves it. You know, he's, he's going very well this year and he'll be a good addition to the next year's series. It was a particularly exciting series, I think, this year as well and with that added prize of a, a GP place too. But also brilliant for British Speedway to have a, a European champion and already definitely having a, a confirmed GP rider in 2021 as well. Yeah, you know, it, obviously the riders going it wanting to be European champion, but this year there's, there's that added uh, carrot dangle being the part of the Speedway Grand Prix, which is really good that there's been a bit of a sort of crossover and agreement between the two series because obviously the Grand Prix, we, we want to be the best, we're the world champion, but we also respect that the SEC series run by one sport is also very professional. And uh, yeah, we 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 worked at sort of an agreement. So um, between BSI and One Sport that and the FIM between us all, we decided the winner of that could be a feeder to the the Grand Prix. Which um, yeah, it, and I know Robert Lambert is his goal was to be European champion, but I'm sure that the added bonus of being in the Grand Prix next year was a very welcoming uh, gift. Let's say. Yeah, especially after his experience with race-offs last year and so on and, and missing out, I think uh, to have it all done and dusted before everybody else has got to be a good place to be. Yeah, of course. And, you know, you, you, people have already looked at the similarities of Ty Wuffenden, a year sort of in the series, then a year out, and he comes back a lot better. And maybe Robert could be that, you know, another one like that. We had a year last year, and I'm sure he will admit he didn't do himself enough justice. He started off quite well, but then drifted off. But a year out may have been a good thing for him now and uh, come back strong in 2021 and, you know, be up there challenging potentially. Before that, though, we've got the 2020 series to look forward to, which it's coming very soon at the time of recording. Um, there were some changes last year with uh, the introduction of, of qualifying. Will those things remain in the COVID era in Poland? Will there be any other changes from a, a fan's point of view as to how the series is going to run? I wouldn't like to say, obviously, it is not really for me to say it um but yeah it, it will look a little bit different because obviously the idea of img who own bsi as a company they want as little amount of time at the stadium as possible so um we have two events on friday and saturday and they, the events will run as normal but things maybe before whether it's practice and qualifying will be adjusted accordingly and for fans who are planning on making the journey, obviously we've seen some fans in the Polish League games, a certain amount of capacity anyway. Is that plan going to continue into the Grand Prix as well? Will people be able to get tickets and, and get into any of these rounds? Obviously, by looking at Polish League matches now, they've been allowed to have 50% of fans. But also, I know this week there's been some hot spots and they're having no fans potentially at some track. So, very fluid uh, situation and... Uh, just keep a lookout for tickets. I know it's going to be difficult because we sell Polish Grand Prix out 
quite easily. So if there's only going to be a 25% or 50% fans, surely it's going to be tough to get hold of them tickets. Um, but yeah, when, when the ticket sales become available, I'm sure that people, hopefully they can get hold of some tickets and let's fingers crossed it doesn't change between then and the event because you only got to look at these test events in the UK that they all had planned and they cancelled them pretty much. So people that managed to get the tickets to these sort of test events to the British government and they cancelled them. So it is a very, it is changing every day uh, and we're doing our best. We want as many people here to watch it as well as watching on TV. But obviously we are, we're guided by government guidelines and if they allow 50% fans in Poland, then we, we, we will do that. But of course, we're, we're again, like I say, we're dictated to by what the government say. That's the voice of Phil Morris, the race director for Speedway Grand Prix, the new series, of course, on the way. We will have a world champion in 2020. And Phil is my guest in this episode of Humans of Speedway. Now, going back to the start of your career, Phil, let's go right back to the early days. I mean, how did you get into Speedway? Because coming from the the, the South Wales area, as you do, the South Wales Valley is not really notorious for Speedway. Rugby, of course, that the main sport there. But how did Speedway come into your life? Well, I think my dad and my family used to go and watch Newport Speedway, potentially. Bristol Speedway, I believe. Um, so I was obviously there and thereabouts, which I can vaguely remember. Um, my uncle... My dad used to race a little bit, not a massive amount, and my uncle used to race at the time when I was growing up. So we used to go along with him, mainly the grass tracks, which he raced. And, yeah, I had a little motorbike. And, of course, once you get a little bike, you want to be like the heroes you see and the stars. So I got invited along. I was with my uncle, I think, at the grass track and having a little go around in an adult. And they said, we have a youth event. Please come along. So I went along, that would have probably been the middle of the 80s. And yeah, that it all went snowballed from there. It was about 10, 9, 10, 11 when I, when I sort of started. The first year was very tough. Um, you know, I was, luckily I was very, very good at sports in school. Um, I could manage to turn my hand to most things, which was quite good. Within a year of probably starting, I think I got, well, Second year of racing, I was British champion, so it was a, a quick field. Grass track, a great place to learn. You know, it's led to so many riders and who have gone on to have uh, illustrious careers. I mean, are we missing a vibrant grass track scene these days? Yeah, you know, the, the used grass track scene back then was very, very healthy. And I, I know you've had many riders on your Scott Nichols and people like that. Was it probably a few years below me? The amount of riders that's come through youth grass track, I think if you take out probably the Eastbourne guys like Dugard, Norris and Barker, I really think pretty much everybody else, apart from the few motocross guys lately, have come through youth grass track. So it's uh, it's definitely, uh, I'm not saying a loss that there's not so many people doing it now, but it's a little bit more, you've got more speedway for the youth now, which is good. But at the time, the youth grass track team you know, you'd get 80, 100 riders at some events. It was crazy. It, it, it was a, a, a great footing when you see, like when I was talking about when I was young, sort of nine, 10 years old, and you probably had Mark Lorem then being the senior guy, the sort of 15, 16-year-old, looking up to him, and then Joe Screen below him, all them guys to look up to, and look what they've come up to in, in the sport. It was, yeah, a good grounding for British youth riders at the time. 
and all of those names you mentioned obviously went on to have fantastic careers of their own in in, in various different disciplines and some multiple disciplines of speedway as well didn't they yeah and of course with the grass track scene it's more grass track long track so a lot of the guys you know combine both like Simon Wig and Kelvin Tatum are obviously fantastic examples of being very high level at both sports but yeah you know there's so many names I was only looking at some videos the other day and and, and it's even the guys that like myself I was never you know the best in the world and but the middle order guys, the solid journeymen that were always there, thereabouts, they were all, you look at the grass track scene back then, and every name you can sort of see where they've gone. So it's it's a shame that it's not as uh, popular and as, let's just say, vibrant as it was. And I think that's probably one of the things which does not help Ricky Speedway. Yeah, sure. And when you get to the stage of taking it seriously then, because obviously you've got to be 16 before you can do a, a professional meeting, I mean, it also coincides with the time in your life where you're choosing your direction and probably you've got your parents uh, on your back sort of making you uh, make life choices of, of where you're going to head. And what made you pursue Speedway uh, a little bit more professionally? Um, I think I was very lucky. Um, in school, I was a very good student in a sense. I had very good exam results to sort of much ease on everything and funny when i listened to most speedway riders chat they hated this school life i actually loved my school life I'd go back tomorrow if i could it was a good time in my life and yeah I, I had choices of things to do and jobs to do and places to go but sport pretty much was my life i represented my counties in most things represented wales in, in different sports and it was definitely a decision for me when I was 16 to what, which direction I would go at because rugby was definitely the local pull for me. Uh, the problem was at the time there was no professional game and uh, it's what we call boot money, you know, so at the end of the game they'd give you a hundred pound. Um, so at the time I actually chose Speedway as a sort of educated decision that I could make a career and a living out of it. So that was the reason I went speedway rather than rugby well speedway's gain definitely uh, rugby's loss I- i'm surprised that rugby wasn't actually a professional sport in wales then when did it become professional Pro- probably a few years after it, it, at the time i think when i was looking into it it was the top the top guys in, in wales they would they were employed by let's say joe blog solicitors they never worked it but they were paid away through them so there was ways of getting a wage out of rugby it was a little bit more different than what it is now. And obviously, as the years go by, rugby way overtook Speedway. And, uh, you know, you're talking of hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of contracts now for, you know, good Welsh players. So even a million. So it, it has changed a lot. But at the time, I would think that was sort of 91, 92 when I started. And that was probably the start when things happened in Southfield with rugby when they started becoming contracted to the clubs and things so yeah, it was one of them periods where I had to make a decision and uh, I'm not you know I wouldn't change it now but yeah I was uh, rugby was my other love at the time now I used to um, I used to live in Cardiff for a few years and um, it just seemed that everybody that you bumped into either knew uh, someone <laughs> that played rugby or was a rugby player <laughs> in some form or another yeah it, it, if you're Welsh rugby is is in your blood i think even if you don't enjoy the sport it's uh when there's a, a 
a nations match against England or Scotland or Ireland. Um, you'll see, you know, wives and grandmas that have no sport affinity whatsoever. They'll put a red shirt on and they suddenly become Welsh supporters for the day. It's definitely our national sport. And, and to be honest with you, it put Wales on the map around the world. If you go to many countries, you know, you say Wales, they'll say, ah, rugby. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's linked to Wales. And again, you talk about the Millennium Principality Stadium. It's owned by the Welsh Rugby Union. And uh, yeah, it's our spiritual home of Speedway as well as my, my local team as well. Anyway, it all worked out well because in your first season, you were a title winner and you did it in one of the great British teams of all time. So, you know, it wasn't a bad place to start, was it? Yeah, of course. Coming straight out with Youth Championship, I done very well and like I say I won a few British championships and jumped in at 16 uh, decided to join Reading which were in the, the highest league at the time and yeah I joined at the back end of 91 because my birthday was in September and then my first uh, full season 92 wow what an introduction to the sport um, you're looking at Per Jonsson um, Jeremy Doncaster Amanda Castagna Jan Anderson, the Swede, these kind of guys, which were absolute top, well, not just top level, best in the world type of guys. Um, I was a bit in awe at first, and they looked after me so well. And uh, I work with Amanda Castagna now, and I, I still remember he sort of took me under his arm a little bit and uh, fought a few battles for me because I was a 16-year-old. And... Yeah, it was a, a fantastic season to be involved in something like that. And we won a league and cup double uh, in one of the, even look back now, when I look back at the teams then, uh, it, it's as hard a league as you'll ever see. Um, so yeah, I was really proud to be there. I raced in most of the meetings. Okay, I didn't go out and get massive points, but I won some races, scored my points and yeah, I was proud that that was a great introduction to the sport for me. A big decision to go direct into the top league. But uh, yeah, really happy with it and had a great year. Now, growing up as a Bradford fan, um, I hoarded uh, a load of Bradford programmes. And not long ago, I was rooting through my garage and I found a box of programmes uh, from the 1992 season. And I didn't realise that was your first season. And, and obviously, <laughs> you're in the programme there, uh, along with Armando Castagna and Per Jonsson and, and what a team it was. But one question I want to ask is, as an opposition rider coming from Reading or wherever you in country you were riding, coming to Odsal, which was a much different stadium, massive stadium, big track. What 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 is it like riding there as an opposition rider? Yeah, it was uh, one of the, for me, what a fantastic track it was, especially on the pit turn. You know, you, you, when you walk the track, you realise how crazy the banking was. And it, <laughs> it's way over what's allowed, I believe. In, oh, in, really? You know, to, yeah, there's only a certain amount of banking you can have. Well, from my experience now with FIM and things, I'm not sure, not really 100% sure about the British uh, rules, but I know they normally mirror. But the amount of banking was absolutely daunting almost at first. But a lot of the things I remember about Bradford was because it was obviously illegal, whatever it was called at the time, that the changing rooms were absolutely fantastic and all new and with baths and big showers and really nice and and yeah it was a, a bit of a, a treat to be going there almost uh but for me the track was absolutely out of this world and i'll still remember i was like 16 year old i think i was in a race with doncaster on my side and i think it was tatum and 
I don't know, Sean Wilson or someone, a really tough race. And I was winning it for like two laps and take me and Kelvin Tatum passed two or three times and I ended up coming second. And I was really, I can still remember that. I think I've got a video of it. It's, uh, yeah, Bradford was definitely a place that holds uh, good, good things in my mind, definitely. Bradford and Reading too, you know, big rivals, uh, particularly in 1992 and, you know, with Havelock and um, Per Jonsson, obviously very, very strong on the individual front. I mean, when you look at the makeup of those teams, were things tougher back then than they are now in terms of the strength and depth? Every heat there back then was so tough. There was no, nothing, no easy. When you look at, and not, not disrespecting what happened in this day and age, because everyone rides for their points and, and uh, you know, their teams. But the, the strength of the teams then, and you must, if, if you were a Bradford guy, you must remember, you know, Avalok, you know, all them guys in the team together. And I think Screeny was there one year, Lauren was there. You yeah. know, the, the amount of riders they had. In, in this day and age, you've got one big hitter at a club reality of it um then you had five it was uh yeah it, it was tough every but i wouldn't change it i don't think i think i'm happy with what i did and of course everyone wants to do better in their chosen sport um but yeah I, i'm proud of what i've done and yeah I'm, i look back on it fondly you got some great honours. I think many honours that uh, a number of riders will be very pleased to have uh, on their mantelpiece at the, at the end of their career and reading Obviously, we've talked already a very special team, but um, the one that you spent the majority of your career with as a rider. Yeah, I did about, I think it was 19 years I did in, in Speedway, which was obviously a good, a, good, um, a good innings, they would say. And I think, to be honest with you, I think about 14 of them were at Reading. So, I, I, again, I'm, I'm proud of being, I think, the most points ever scored in Reading's history. Um the second or third most appearances ever in history. I think it's only Jan Anderson that's in front of me, or maybe Dave Mullet, one of them too. But yeah, to be up there in that kind of thing, obviously I had a big career at Reading and did a lot of things with them. But yeah, when, when that sort of ended uh, in 2004, just at the time I just felt I just needed a new challenge and a bit of a breakaway. So I did a few uh, years, I did a year at Newcastle, you're at Bellevue, but during these times, I'd had a few injuries and I was probably never the same. 2000 to 2004 was my seasons when I was racing to sort of a nine point average in the Premier League. I was up there with the top guys in the league and, I, and that was when I felt I was doing myself justice and things were going good. Uh, the years after that, I enjoyed them a lot. Like the year at Bellevue was fantastic. I was pitted between two of my good friends, Joe Screen and Jason Crump. Um, and again, just to be be in the, in the squad with them and Kenneth Beer and Simon Stead was a pretty impressive team to be involved with. And yeah, I, things like that. I, you know, I've shared tracks with these guys and you know, I'm proud that I've raced with Jason a lot of times and he shepherded me around and looked after me and pointed me where I should be going on the track with the guys behind me. But yeah, I've had some good times in Speedway that I'll definitely hold in my mind and I wouldn't change them for the world. 
You're listening to Humans of Speedway. My guest in this episode is Phil Morris, uh, now the FIM Speedway Grand Prix race director and uh, race director for the Speedway of Nations as well. Uh, but proud Welshman and Reading Racers legend, uh, we'll find out what his Speedway paradise looks like before the end of this episode, where he's going to design his dream meeting and who'll be in Phil's all-time 1-7. to seven. Stay listening to find out. But Phil, one thing I'd like to ask you about is we've talked about the early days of your career and we've talked about the latter days of your career. What keeps a Speedway rider motivated as you go on your journey through the sport? Because I imagine your aims and ambitions at the start of your career are possibly a little bit different to the ones as you get towards the back end. I mean, how did it go for you? It's, it's, it's tough to sort of, when you're 16, you just sort of go with it, you know, and trying your best. And I think probably... Uh, mid 90s I was improving from 92 93 94 95 and I had about three years where I just really didn't do anything and I think in about 98 or 99 I all I was thinking to myself if I don't improve I, I, I'm not enjoying it enough to carry on it was a little bit of a let's just say a, a moment and then in 99 I seemed to really kick on in 2000 and 2001 and then suddenly me, I, I'm a very much competitive guy. If I'm not doing well, I'm not enjoying it as much. And I think when I started doing well again, then everything becomes easier. And you know, like the, the things you remember, like I'll never forget a 21 point maximum at Reading against a Hull when they won the league. And I think I could have raced all night and I never would have lost the races. As a leader, <laughs> it's difficult to explain. And, and many sportsmen use the word flow. Once you sometimes get in a situation where just you don't even have to do anything, it just happens. I think the mental aspect of Speedway is a lot more prominent now. But at the time, I bet any rider will, will listen to this and listen to this point exactly. Some days you'll go somewhere and you'll ride your absolute backside off and end up with like six or seven points. I think, how the hell has that happened? And then the next day, on the same track with the same bikes, you'll think, I didn't do anything, but I've scored 14 points. How does it work? It's just on the day, sometimes, you know, everyone has a good day in work and a bad day in work. It's the same as you, you know, when you go to work doing a voiceover, you know, you're going to, one day you'll get it perfect first time, and the next day it'll take you five, five shots, you know. You know mm -hmm. It's never the same each day, and I think, from a rider's perspective, um, that is big. In it, the, the mental aspect of everything is, is good. It never really got to me mentally. I was very strong, strong-minded, and I never really had any problems with it. But I know it played an effect on how you performed. Yeah, I know that um, certainly Scott Nichols mentioned it in that first episode we did. That particularly, I think he was relating it to to the Grand Prix series in that how. Uh, managing the mental aspect of that. And, and, you know, it's easy for people to say, well, it's just another meeting. It's like turning up anywhere else, but, you know, it's it's not. And it's 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 framing that in your mind and, uh, and, and coping with that extra pressure. I think I think it's difficult because Speedway, you know, as everybody knows, it, it's a performance-based uh, salary. So if you don't score points, you don't earn money. Um so it is is a little bit doggy dog on track, you know. You're you're racing for 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 every point you get, and you know you many times you see it, especially on laps three or four. If you and your teammate are third or fourth, they'll still be battling for that point because it's money to them. Um, and it is it is difficult to explain it to the normal people that you know 
mainstream sports, football, rugby, you know, they get a salary. And if they have a bad game, they still get paid the salary. But as a speeder rider, if you have a bad night, you can actually not earn much money. And if you bend bikes or blow up engines, you're actually a lot in minus. So I think from a from a rider's perspective, it's very difficult. But as you say, then going to the top level of the Grand Prix, it, it is then maybe not so much about the money because they know they've got enough of their costs and everything and it's, they just want to be world champion so that that element gets taken out of it then so it's, it's a little bit different um you know it, it, it's tough to understand but i see it close up now the difficulties of the grand prix and the different riders how they approach it mentally differently how they some are very happy to chat some want to keep their own little zone so everyone's got their way of dealing with it but i can imagine so I listened to the Scott Nichols one earlier just to see what, what was going on. And I can imagine you know, going out at Cardiff with all them people. I was proud enough to be the first guy on track to test it for um, the Benfield Sports at the time. So I tested the track, but that was with no fans in. I can imagine what it was like. Uh, amazing, but also pressurised as well. And now in your position as being the race director of the Speedway Grand Prix, I mean, have you heard from riders how it is riding at those big locations like Cardiff, like Warsaw, where you've got tens of thousands of people packed in, way bigger crowds than they used to. I mean, how does that affect them when they get on the track? I mean, can they hear what the fans are shouting and can they see what's being waved with flags and so on? I mean, how how does that distract them in any way when they're on track? The people I spoke to, like I, I've been lucky enough to ride in some big events in Europe, like Marmont with his 20,000 people, um, you do, it's, it's a strange thing as a speeder rider when you're on that start line, especially when the green light comes on. Very difficult to explain that there's actually nothing in your mind. And and to do that as any kind of person, to actually think I'm not going to think of nothing, is almost impossible. I think from a speeder rider, you, you're so zoned into what you're doing, you're just really concentrating. You want to be that first guy to the first bend. You want to drop your clutch first and you, want to make sure that that's what you're doing you, you block out everything around you i think um but as soon as you cross the finish line that's when reality kicks in and you hear the roar I, I would think so from the speeder riders i know most of the guys i know they just zone into what they're doing and they're professional it's the same as a football player you know they're, they're playing without crowds now they're playing exactly the same as they would if they're playing in front of 40 50 thousand people and when you're a professional sportsman, I think that's what you've got to do. Of course, for footballers, it's a lot easier because they do it week in, week out. Where the riders don't ride in front of the fans at Cardiff every week. But uh, it it is a hard thing to do, I'm sure. But I'm sure that most of them get into their zone and just on with the racing. I'm going to come back to the Speedway Grand Prix series in just a few moments, obviously, because uh, we can't not talk about your times as the, the race director there. But I just want to round off your racing career first, um, because it was injury that ended it. And then after that, it was a management role because you uh, took over the under-21s and, and the under-16s. And I want to know, how did your own experience of Speedway at that time as a youngster influence how you wanted to guide this generation of talent? Yeah, I think definitely I was... I would like to think I've got a decent brain in my head, which has probably helped me to where I am now after Speedway. Um, and yeah, as soon as I decided I couldn't carry on because of my shoulder, I had so many problems, and the surgeon sort of said, "Look, you know, 
damage it again. You're looking at shoulder replacement. So it, it made my decision for me. And within a few weeks, I think Graham Reeve made the call, um, which I'm very thankful for. It was part of rolling the ball to where I am now, potentially. He said, would I be interested in, you know, being under 21 British team manager and looking after the under 21 and under 16 scene? And yeah, I had a quick think about it and said, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. So yeah, I went straight pretty much from finishing my career straight into under 21, under 16, which I really enjoyed. I, I was always one, I like giving something back. But young lads, you know, if, if you can give them something that, that they will remember, then why not? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very close-knit sport. It's almost a very family sport. And uh, yeah, I, I very much enjoyed a few years, like three or four years doing that. Yeah, it was a good time. And it must be very rewarding to see that progression in front of your very eyes as, as these riders improve and they get into bigger teams and they go into bigger leagues or maybe get involved internationally. It must be very rewarding for you to keep tabs on on how these riders are doing because the riders you're working with then are now very much coming to the fore and one of them you can keep an even closer eye on next season because one of them's Robert Lambert. You know, it, it, this is genuine now. People, some of the guys don't believe it when I tell them, but I still check some of the, the lads that I was sort of, Robert Lambert being one of them, the first day I saw him, I was honestly wowed by him as like a nine, 10 year old, maybe 11, I'm not sure. But the way he controlled a bike just had me in awe, I'll be honest with you. Um, so yeah, he was one of the guys at the time, Robert Lambert. And, and when you look at the ones that's coming through now, I do keep a lookout on them and uh, yeah, I'm proud to see they're doing well and and improving in the sport. And yeah, it's it's nice to, to feel maybe even if it's only a pinch of salt you've put into their career, that's enough. You know, you've done something. And yeah, I still look out for them now and 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 see what how they're all doing. And when you're talking about Robert Lambert there and and what caught your eye, I mean, what specifically is it about his riding style that that is is different and probably is leading to the success that he's having? Well, when I first saw him, I think it was Buxton, if I remember, which I know is not a very easy track, the best of riders. And his control on the bike uh, was pretty much phenomenal for, a, you know, not even a teenager. I, I, and there was a few others in the same sort of ilk. And you just think, wow, you know, there is, there is talent. And people don't realize that the problem, I think, when you look at Britain against Poland, using that as, a, as an example, I can remember taking a rider, I'm trying to think, it was, would have been Carl Newman, to a Polish under-21 qualifier, and there's a taxi pulled up, three kids got out of a car in their school uniforms, got changed, jumped on a bike, and did maybe 100 laps. And in Poland, they all try and bring as many youngsters on as possible each track. They provide them with bikes and mechanics, and of course, the more numbers you've got, the more likelihood you've got of making a superstar. That's, you know, reality in any sport. You're lucky if if you, we're not going to get winter sport stars in the UK because we haven't got winter sport. Yet Austria, Switzerland are going to have a lot more. That's, you know, they've got more people doing it. And I think that's where we fall down, that we don't have as many riders doing it, and as many opportunities in this country, in Britain, as they do in maybe the other countries. So that's a big we have 
And on that note, I mean, Speedway in the UK, you know, going back sort of 40, 50 years used to attract massive, huge crowds. And obviously we're not in that position now and some tracks uh, struggle more than others. Where do you think the crowds have have disappeared to for many of the tracks around the UK? And and why does Speedway perhaps find itself uh, not quite as popular as it has been in the past? And 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 what's your take on, on how to fix that? I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a number of things, in my opinion. Um, there's lots of, lot more entertainment for your money now at the moment. So there is more options, which we didn't have maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. So that's a big start. But for me, uh, I I think the BSPA needed to have somebody in charge as a CEO to make the decision for the benefit of the sport. Totally respect that it's run by promoters and everyone's got their own agenda that suits them. I get that because they're putting the money in. But in my eyes, the issue with British Speedway is it's not a business. If a club can break even, they're happy. For me, that's not a business. I've, I've run business, I own businesses. You run a business to make money. So British Speedway should have been looking at making money. And again, with all the sky money that came in, you know, they should have been investing in youth. They should have been investing in, in not just, and I, I'm going back, I, I listened to some of the podcasts today and saying money just got spent on riders, which was the truth, um, which is great for a rider, but not for the sport in general. And I, I've been there, you know, you all want as much money as possible, but also you should expect your promoter to not be losing money. You know, it's not viable if people are losing money. And the reality is less than a handful of clubs are probably making money. That is the truth. And yeah, if it's not viable as a business, then it's not doing what it should be doing. So I think there should be changes. And it's easy to look at, you know, things like darts, and your snooker and things which have made a difference over the last 10, 20 years, and, and they're still getting what they need to get. But there is no magic wand, I don't think. Um, youth, youth investment and development should have been massive. What they do in Poland by putting the reserves in every meeting to youngsters, I think is paramount. Should have been done a long time ago. It should have been kept. Um, I could say a CEO of the BSPA that run it for the best of the sport, not for the clubs, which, again, is not going to go down well with the clubs because if someone says, well, this is not good for me, I'm going to lose more money, well, you shouldn't be losing money in the first place. Things have got to be done, whether they have to cut their costs, cut the riders' costs, which riders won't like, of course. If, you, if, you're not, if you're only getting X through the gate, you can't play X plus Y to the riders. It's just not, not business. And... I think it hasn't been run as a business is number one. You need someone at the top that can run the sport independently. It'd be great to have a Barry Hearn or something like that, or, you know, somewhere of that ilk. Yeah, there's lots of things that culminate, in my opinion, that's made it sort of fall. But the sport is great, and I think it's a great product. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. My guest in this episode is Phil Morris, FIM Race Director for the Speedway Grand Prix and the Speedway of Nations series. And one thing that's come up, Phil, in previous episodes has been um, how we can polish up presentation on a domestic level at the various tracks, Um, obviously citing 
the Grand Prix as being the, the leading benchmark, really, of, of how to put a meeting on. I mean, what can British Speedway learn from the Grand Prix series? It's not difficult. You know, I, this is my sort of job. Once a year, I meet with every organiser, clerk of the course, normally in February. We spend a day going through how we expect A to be done, B to be done, X to be done, Y, Z. We want the show to look the same, whether it's in Cardiff or in Timbuktu. Apart from the stadium, we want the show, we want the feel, we know how it's working. I, I, I can tell you, we had 10 Grand Prix last year, and apart from one of them, they all finished within five minutes of each other, from heat wow. one to 23. And that, that's around about two hours, 20 minutes. But, but going back to what we say, We've got a big, heavy work manual, and all a promoter, whether it's Torrent, whether it's Prague, they can go through that book. As long as they follow that book, it's pretty much laid out in front of them. So for me, British Speedway should be having somebody do a, a, work, a work manual that everyone follows. So it's the same everywhere. Start the same. They do this the same. They do that the same. All heat's great. You know, the grade should only be six minutes long. And all these things, if you put it in place and everyone starts learning from it, but it's very difficult when you, you've got British Speedway where they'll probably say, well, you shouldn't come and tell us what to do. Instead of thinking, let's do it for the benefit of the sport. Um, and yeah, I, I'm lucky to be involved in the Grand Prix. I'm very privileged to be involved in it. But I see what goes on behind that goes, lots of things go wrong. The people, as long as people don't see it in the crowd or on the TV, we've done our job. So it's, it's about minimising the fault and the problems behind the scene and so not covering them up, but making sure they are fixed before it, it, it's known to the crowd in a sense. Yeah, it's that great sort of live event situation of trying to present a, a graceful swan on the surface, but you yeah. can not see the legs <laughs> kicking like mad underneath the water. No, you just... You just, you guys like yourself, you just talk a bit more and they can. But no, it, it's very difficult to, you know, we do a production meeting at every Grand Prix. Uh, and when we're looking at timing, we're not talking at hours or minutes, we're talking seconds. So yeah. at, you know, at 7.03 and 30 seconds, this will happen. At 7, because I know at 7.03 and 50 seconds, riders get pushed off. That's my first thing that I work off. So, yeah. and, and people don't realize that these, these attention to small details, it, it just, it's just once you've got it ingrained, it becomes normal. And I can promise you the riders actually get used to it. You know, we do four races, bang, 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 and we have a six or seven minute gap. But they know, you know, where they've got to be. They know how it works. The riders know what's happening. And, and once everyone knows what's happening, it becomes normal. And, and it, it's not difficult to do. But I just feel a good, solid sort of blueprint that every track does X, Y, Z. It helps because everybody knows when you go to, whether it's Birmingham, whether it's Poole, whether it's Edinburgh, whether it's Berwick, wherever you go, the show will be the same. Of course, you have different riders. Let's try it, you know, I'm not, and I'm not preaching here because you know, it's not my job. I'm luckily I'm involved in the Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, you look at Poland, 
the reality is they followed what the Grand Prix have done. But you look at a lot of the things, they've got a work manual, they do things at this time, at that time, this has to be done, then that has to be done. And it all falls into place and looks a better product, in my opinion. And really the whole production needs to be well-timed because you've got TV and, and TV demand specific timings you know tv stations and tv programs run by the second themselves anyway so they're going to expect a meeting like this to, to follow the same guidelines yeah obviously with the tv you know we, we've got a three hour start to finish schedule and uh i can assure you nobody wants it to go past three hours because you know, some countries are going to lose a feed and things like that so touch wood which i'm doing right now we've not failed with that one yet in in five years of involved of course this is why sometimes i can be a little bit in front and then i'll, I'll in a sense i'll choke the event back a little bit because it's going so good but you only need to have one crash which breaks two airbags you know the air fence and that's a 20 minute delay 15 minute while they change them so it's, it's, it's about working and knowing the things and, and feeling it in a sense but yeah i, I it's, it's all linked to being a professional show, and I think we've got a very professional show in the Grand Prix, and I'm proud of it. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. Phil Morris is my guest, the FAM race director for the Speedway Grand Prix. And, um, Phil, when we're leading up to an event, what are some of the things that the race director has to do you know, days prior to the, the tapes going up? I mean, what's on your checklist, and, and what things are you worrying about in the days leading up to an event like this? pretty much non, non-stop. So I'm, I've got a few days before each event where I'm literally checking everything. And uh, you have to trust the local officials and the local clerk of the course, who's the guy I work with. Um, and you're basically saying, look, have you got this in place? Have you got that in place? Uh, we check everything. Once we check it twice, we check it three times. Um, i tell you a real good story. In Germany a few years ago, uh, we put things in place to fix this problem in the past. But the, it was three years ago, I think it would have been. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, I said, I haven't seen no tyres arrive yet. Now, we, we normally would have had around about, uh, I think it was 100 tyres. So at 12 o'clock on a Saturday, I had a meeting. I got a meeting. I said, look, I've not seen them. And uh, they'd not been ordered. Oh. So we've got a massive catastrophe of 12,000 people coming to the stadium and we have no tires. So again, this is where plan B kicks in. You ring everyone and everyone you know, and we had an organizer from Denmark bring a load of tires, some from Germany, some of the riders had tires. So we pulled everything together and we just about scraped through, but nobody knew about it. But there's something we learned. And from now on, we, we have to have assurance that the tyres are there three days in advance and we have an email signed off saying it's been done. So these little things you learn, there's so many minute things, it's, it's really difficult to sort of pinpoint it. I will have a, a meeting that will take two or three hours going through a checklist. And again, I, I'm not proud to say it, but my first ever Grand Prix, which I'm sure a lot of people remember, was Warsaw when everything went wrong. Yeah. Now, me, me being a little, not naive, but when I asked the local organiser, have you got your second set of tapes? Yes, we've got them. When the problem with the tapes happened, they said, right, get the second set of tapes out. Oh, we haven't got them. So this this is where we had a big problem where I trusted. Now I actually have to physically see that they're there. Not that I don't trust people, 
because it comes back on me and it'll be my issue or my problem um yeah definitely i'll uh there's so many things to check and uh you have to check the riders licenses and it just is not the, the air fence has to be xyz we have to have at least four spare panels because if you broke two and you didn't have spares the event cancelled so there's so many small things that you have to be in place and be ready to sort of check and it's, 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 a, it's a massive checklist when it comes to the actual event we see you on tv usually you know near the pit gate or whatever and you've got earpieces in and radios around your waist belt i mean who are you also in contact with in addition to the riders who are there in front of you i mean i, I imagine the the tv producer but um is it the referee you're also speaking to as well yeah obviously i'm working with the referee um I don't talk during a race, but between races, if, if you need to warn somebody or any other reason, you know, wants to talk to the start marshal, I'll go and do that or facilitate it, get somebody to do it. I've also sort of got TV involved where I'm telling them, and we've got to a stage now, again, because I've got so used to my job, as soon as we finish heat four, they will say, can you give me a time? And I'll, I'll say like, uh, 7.21, we'll back on here. I'll be pushing off. I, I, I'll, I'll guesstimate, much bang on, when we're going to push off for the next race. So the producer then, Steve Saint, he knows how long he can have a break for, how long they can go to the studio for, and it's much easier for them. And, and that's something we've brought in over the last few years. So you've got the TV side, you've got the referee side, and obviously I deal with all the the pits if a rider's not happy and wants to speak to the ref, I facilitate that. Um, of course, riders then will come up with their grievances about the track, about the rider and somebody else, you know, whatever. So I'm sort of in the middle of everything. And of course, I work for the FIM, so that's my uh, ultimate responsibility is to make sure the sport inside of the event is correct. I've got some questions for you now because we opened up a little bit of a, a mailbag for you, Phil, and there's some Grand Prix-based questions in here and some not quite so Grand Prix-based, so we'll come to those in a moment. Uh, first question then is from Clive Upright. He says, hi, Phil has done a fantastic job, but what would you change about false starts and riders then going back to the pits? Uh, and it also asks, are your modelling days finally over? <laughs> Yeah, the modern days have done that was uh, back when I was a bit younger. <laughs> but no, on a serious note, uh, with the start, uh, I, I, I'm a firm believer of we're probably the only sport that doesn't really have a randomised start. Um, pretty much every rider knows it's around about a second, green light comes on, the tapes go. Once your brain knows it's a second, that's when you guess, when you sort of anticipate it. Um, my, my my idea is to put a randomizer uh, in there, so 0.5 seconds to start, two seconds, it's got to be between there. So the riders don't know when it's going to go. It's going to be different every race. For me, I think that will stop a lot of it. Because what's happening now is riders know when the tapes are going, give or take. Once your brain becomes accustomed to it, it keeps happening. So my my solution would be a randomizer like they have in formula one where nobody moves like they have in motor gp where nobody moves like they have in motocross gp where nobody moves it, it just if you look at what other people are doing you know it, it, and i understand they've all got brakes then bikes i get that but yeah as 
this is wait, I could go on all day talking about this. Um, I've done a lot of research, and basically, what's happened? We've got faster and faster and faster with the start over the last ten years. For some reason, um, I don't know why, and that's been one of the part of why people are now making more jumps or anticipation. In, in my opinion, and we keep hearing people talking about transponders. There seems to be a lot of support from many riders on on modernising things and. The system that we're currently using is is quite old, isn't it? You know, for me, I think start tapes again. Yeah, okay, they're they're part of the sport and they've been there. And speedway is one of them sports where a lot of fans don't like change. You know, it's it's, it's one of them sports where if you change something, you know, hell has broken loose. You know, it's one of them things. So if they did decide to get rid of tapes with, you know, transponders as they do in the other sports. If you move past the line, that's it. And there'll probably be people will be all up in here over that. But let's be real and let's try and get the sport into the next century and try and be a bit more. Yeah, perhaps that's you know something that we need to look at is something an alternative that takes with transponders and randomized starts. Let's maybe in the future. Who knows? Now, one from Gary Schofield, it says, could you ask Phil um, how close we're likely to be to possibly ever having a GP at Bellevue? Uh, would that ever happen? Quite possible. Um, obviously, the the stadium is good. The track is good. Um, people don't realise that pulling up uh, temporary grandstands is not a simple and cheap option. At the moment, Cardiff brings 40,000 fans every year, uh, give or take, no problems. There's, I'm not, don't want to get into too much into it, but obviously the Welsh Government helped with the promotion of Cardiff. And at the moment, with the promoters BSI, I don't think they want to devalue that event by giving fans an option to do two, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we have new promoters, Eurosport, uh, Discovery in a few years. Who knows what their uh, plans will be? But I think the stadium, the track is obviously ready. The problem is, I think it's only like a 5,000 capacity stadium as it is now. Yeah. Not really that viable for a Grand Prix. And I'm sure people will say, yeah, but sometimes you only have six, 7,000 at Kursko in Slovenia and things like that. Yes, I agree, but it's, it's the only event they have in that country. So it, it is difficult to give you an exact answer. Potentially, yes, there's, there's a chance. Probably not next year, but maybe in the future, you never know. Peter Oakes was saying um, that the guy who's the head groundsman um, at the new Tottenham Stadium is a massive Speedway fan, and he he personally would like to see one in there. So if you can work on that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, Peter's one of the guys, we always uh, we're big Liverpool football fan, so we... Uh, we talk uh, about half speedway, half football, I think, when we chat. But, yeah, I know he, he said he's, there's a guy at the stadium. It, of course, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I'm sure, as you know, BSI, IMG own the Grand Prix Series this year. They're going to potentially lose money this year. So it, it's, it's about them being a business, making money, same as what we spoke about. So maybe in the future, it'd be great to have something here. But... Um, at the moment, I think Cardiff is our spiritual home, and long may it continue. I would say at the moment. Yeah, definitely, and uh, definitely missed this year. Uh, final question from Paul Hunsden, who says it's not a Speedway of Nations or a GP-related question, but can you ask Phil 
how close he was to becoming a professional wrestler, and was he trained by Kendo Nagasaki? Right, so this is this is a good friend of mine. He used to be my uh, sort of commercial manager, Paul. Um, <laughs> he ended up, I think, he was a sort of centre green announcer at Reading. But before we get to the wrestling, I remember one one event. These two guys came along, both six foot and six foot three, and we got told that they are from uh, WWE. One of them was uh, Pretty Boy Johnny Valentine, I think, and the other one was the Anaconda. He'd made all this up. The next thing I know, they carry me on their shoulders, we're having photos, it's in the local press and everything. And some people on the internet went, we've looked these guys up and we can't find them anywhere. <laughs> so he's having a bit of a joke. And I think it may have been him that sort of hacked my Wikipedia and actually said that I was big into my wrestling and I was trained by Kendo Nagasaki. <laughs> so I think it's probably his fault people ask me these questions. I Right. Alongside that, I was part of Boyozone, uh, a Welsh tribute <laughs> band, Boyozone, and I won a singing contest in Prestatin with Sunita. So, yeah, these are some <laughs> of the other things that people ask me, which are not quite correct, but a bit of fun. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> right. Let's move on to the uh, <laughs> to the Speedway Paradise section, I think, uh, and let's see where we go with this, um, because I think otherwise I don't think we can top that. Um, <laughs> this is um, your dream meeting, really, so the perfect okay. track, perfect location, and, um, and the riders that you'd like to see in there as well. So um, we'll kick off with the first question. Um, the track, purely for racing. Now, obviously, doing what you do, you must have a lot of experience of different surfaces around Europe and the world, in fact. Yeah, yeah, I do. It's um, it's a really tough question, actually, because when you've spent 14 years at a track, which you know, like Reading, when you know at the back of your hand, it was very good for me because I was not the greatest gator, but I could pass. So that's got to be up there. But there's a few others I thought about. The one especially was Trelawney. I only raced here probably four times. Absolutely loved the place, and it was an amazing little track. Um, during my later years, I definitely enjoyed your smaller, tighter track tracks like your Edinburgh and Arena Essex, which are not going to be on people's radar. But I think, not saying it, this is no disrespect. To, I'm, not, I'm not trying to butter you up, but I do think Bradford may have been my favourite ever race track. Wow! There you go. You see, and so, uh, might be might be coming back. They they keep yeah mentioning potentially. So yeah, Bradford would be there, and then I'll also throw in Marmon as a long track, separate speedway because that was a special three cornered track with twenty thousand people there. And yeah, so speedway, I'd go Bradford for long track. I'd go Marmon. And did you do ice speedway as well? Telford, not the proper stuff. Yeah, I, I did ah, quite right. well at Telford. I've sort of been on the British Championship roster a good few times and that. But yeah, never the real ice racing. I, I, I've actually worked on it for the last few years. The FIM have got me involved to try and improve the feel and the flow of that championship. So I've been, the last few years, I've been quite involved in it. But yeah, not, not actually on the real big spikes. Yeah, that is crazy speedway, that. Um, yeah, very crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the stadium that you'd put that track in. Stadium, okay. So, obviously, being my, I, I would like to pick Cardiff because of what it is, but I know it's not a real Speedway stadium. But for me, being my local stadium, I would have to pick that. But uh, thinking of a real stadium as, let's say, there's, there, there's a track there. 
I pro- actually, I will say Horton's, again, another one that's not a real back and it's built there. For me, Horton's was a perfect, perfect speedway venue. 12,000 people, very tight to the track. Well, when I was there, I just felt this feels right for speedway. It's great to be in Cardiff and Warsaw, but that's only one-offs. But I thought that felt great. But for me, you're probably looking at oh, probably Lesnar or Torren for me. They're both Torren's a good brand new type stadium and tight, where Lesnar is a bit more of an open stadium. So I, I'd probably go for one. But then saying that, Origin, only a six or seven thousand stadium, but what a beautiful little stadium built. Um so it depends on what you want, you know. So for me, for a speedway feel, because we're not we're not Premier League football, we're not, you know, Champions League football. I think Origin is actually a, a beautiful little built stadium. It's all sort of built in sections. So I, I'm gonna go for Gorichen as a bit of an outsider for everyone else. Nice. It's the first time it's been suggested. I was going to uh, deliver my Torren fact for you there. Do you know that oh, um, uh, Torren's track is based on Bradford? And Per Janssen was loved Bradford, so that's his input into it. Yeah, uh, built. He told them how to do it. So yeah, a lot of it is is based on that. I am aware yeah. of that one. But good, yeah, good yeah, fact. Though, good fact. It's a good. It's a good one. Have your sleeve. You know, it breaks the ice at parties. Um, <laughs> if you go into a speedway party, uh, yeah, that's the same. When I drop, I'm the first one on the track at Cardiff. You know, it's it's a nice one to have on the CV. <laughs> first ever around Cardiff. I mean, yeah. how how did that track feel when you first rode it? Because I mean, it, it, I know it varies year on year. To be fair, it felt like it was billiard table smooth, like concrete. It was no give. I remember doing a start in the back straight. It made no rut or anything. It was. Uh, yeah, they just said try outside, inside, it wide, tight, cut back, and it was not a ripple on the track. And of course, I, and a, a good fact that you may know, what caused one of the big problems was a rider, and I think it was Piotr Potasevich, did a practice start in the middle of a corner, and it caused the track to sort of move a little bit. So that's what caused some problems there. So there you go, another interesting fact. Right, so, so our, our practice starts on corners banned now. Um, they were, but the tracks are so good now, we don't need to worry about it now. They, they, they're built so well, it doesn't cause a problem now. Officially, they shouldn't, but they still do it. But, yeah. but you'll get away with it now. Um, let's move on then to the, uh, I think, the bit that people look forward to the most. Uh, your all-time one to seven. Uh, the dream team from Phil Morris. Off you go. Right. Well, number one is an easy one for me, Phil Janssen. Uh, without doubt, racing with him for a few seasons... He was the most gifted person on a motorbike I have ever seen. What he could do, how he could get out of trouble, how he kept his wheels in line from a speedway ride to watch him when everyone else is locking up and doing things and he's almost road racing around was phenomenal. Um, And of course, he was my hero. I looked up to him and it was such a tragedy when he had his accident because I can... I think I only ever seen him come off his bike once in like two and a half seasons. That shows how good he was. And he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So my number one is definitely Per Janssen. Fantastic rider. And uh, yeah, a big uh, a big fan of, of riding the Bradford track <laughs> as well, as we mentioned before. Um, let's go then to your next choice. One world champion on the board. Who's next? Um, I'm going to go with number five then, my other big hitter. And that's going to be Hans Nielsen. Uh, before I was 16, 
I used to watch him and be in awe of him a little bit and just how how much of uh, a dictator he was, especially when he was off gate four. He would be at the white line before you could blink. And you know, he, he, he'd win a lot of his races by um, repetition, I think, more than anything. But yeah, he'd be, that'd be my one and five big hitters. Yeah, um, I think as big hitters go, um, Per Jonsson and Hans Nielsen, a fairly good start. So um, who else then would we have for, in the makeup of this Phil Morris all-time one to seven? Yeah, well, partner with Per Jonsson at number two, I'm going to put a good friend of mine, uh, also former world champion, Jason Crump. That's a good opening keep partnership, Per Jonsson and Jason Crump. I know they were good friends as well. And Jason's got a lot of uh, respect for Per. Yeah, Crumpy's you know, one of the hardest races you'll ever meet. And, uh, yeah, you wouldn't get no, every time he gets on a track, you know, he raced in my farewell event and I knew he wanted to win it. He wasn't there to just put on a show. He wants to win everything he's in. So, yeah, and a lot of respect for him, race with him and a friend. So, yeah, Jason Crump at two. Okay, so who's going to be at number three? All right, are you going to are you going to choose a middle pairing? So my middle order pairing, three or four, um, I'm going to go for absolute legends of British Speedway, Mark Loram and Joe Screen. Um, uh. Again, both good guys. I would class as friends. You know, they were a bit older than me in the youth grass track, but I looked up to them and, uh, yeah, respect to them. Their the racing ability for both of them to be able to put the bikes in places and do things phenomenal. So them guys as a partnership, it, I don't think either of them are good gators, so you'll definitely have some... Uh, good races when they're out. Yeah, and uh, probably a good time off the track as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they, they, like to, they like to enjoy themselves and uh, I'm sure that uh, they look back fondly on everything with them. So Per Jonsson, Jason Crump, Mark Loram, Joe Screen and Hans Nielsen. You've got two reserves left. Who's it going to be? So um, number six, I'm going to go with Amanda Castagna. few reasons. Uh, when I joined Redden, he sort of, was my, my big brother in a sense and looked after me and uh i still i, I i'll tell i told the story a few times and i quite like it that we was racing uh i think it was the best pairs i think and uh he looked in the program and he said what does this mean phil so i read it and I said uh they may not be the favorites on the track today but they're the team you wouldn't want to meet up a dark alley <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he quite liked that. And, uh, yeah, he's a very, very strong, tough guy and somebody I've worked with now and probably one of the most instrumental guys in me getting my job at the Grand Prix. So, yeah, as a respect and a thanks and everything, he's going to be there at number six. So i just Absolutely. got one more to go. Okay, then, drum roll. Drum roll. So my number seven, I don't think anyone will ever put this in a team on your podcast. That's my prediction. Go on, then. <laughs> it is Freddie Williams. Yeah, not so times, far. <laughs> two times world champion and he was Welsh. So that's um, my link there to somebody that's with not we, not many riders come from Wales. So, um, yeah, he's not with us now, bless him. But, uh, yeah, Freddie Williams would be my number seven just because of what he did being world champion twice and Welsh. You know, we've got a dragon on our flag. We have to be different to everybody else, you know. Absolutely standard, yeah. It goes without saying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, none of these crosses or things like that. We have to have a big red dragon in the middle. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean, I was living in Cardiff when there was a, a football tournament on and it's uh, it's, it's a dicey business. <laughs> <Very>. <laughs> um, right, who would be the referee? 
tough one because again if you notice i didn't with my team i've sort of stayed away from current riders i've got to be a little bit careful in my decision i couldn't <laughs> go with current grand prix guys <laughs> wouldn't look great well i suppose crumpy's still on the scene but i don't think he's gonna be back in the grand prix so i'm okay there um referees um i've got an affinity with graham reeve and tony Steele because they helped me on the ladder to where i am graham reeve with the under 21 under 16 and tony Steele involved in me being clerk of the course at cardiff and working my way up the ladder so them two are definitely in the shout but even though i didn't probably have that many meetings with him i've worked for five years with graham Brody as the speedway grand prix secretary and we very good friends and i've heard so many stories about his refereeing and things he's done and things he didn't and how he's done them i think without doubt it has to be graham Brody as the honorary referee for my meeting graham Brody in the box and um on the subject of uh, officialdom then if you could change one rule right now what would it be we've already spoke about it really but i i just generally feel a randomizer at the start is going to make people wait until the tapes go rather than guessing is you know for me there's two words is anticipation and is reaction we want mm -hmm. people to react to the start and not anticipate it that's that's the reality and it's the same in any other sport whether it be athletics swimming cycling you know you have to wait for that bang gun tapes whistle whatever it is but we just we can't seem to do that and it's in for everybody and it's the most complaints i have about people you know having a restart why does it happen and you know we've tried our best to not let them in the pits and things like that but it's still it's a you know it's a three minute delay that a lot of people hate so somewhere along the line i would say we've got to try and fix this some kind of starting issue and finally, who would be the opposition against your team of All-Stars then? This is any complete team from from history that you could invite along. I think I've already mentioned the team. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of it, so I'm going to be racing against them, which would be a bit of a thorn. It's Red in Races 1992. And, uh, yeah, I still still remember it fondly. And one of the things that I, I wrote this down, uh, I laugh at people now joking about... Uh, they can't help it about speeder nations being towards the end of October. It'll never happen. Oh, ridiculous putting it on there, British weather. But that year we won the league. We had 18 meetings in October. Wow. So there you go. <laughs> and I think we had double headers left, right, and centers with Bradford, if I remember some of them, with the cup thing. But yeah, so that's my team. Bred in 1992. Uh, amazing end of the season. But yeah, the winner double, that was good enough for me in, in, a, in the league. Fantastic. And final question to you then is, when you look back at, at your experience in, in Speedway, what, what's the one moment that you look back on with the most um, most affection perhaps, but also maybe that makes you smile the most? Um, There's quite a few few small ones. Really. I've got no massive task. I won the Premier League best pairs. Um, I think I won the New York Classic at Newport, which is the first. Again, something good for my CV. I think it was the very first meeting anywhere in the world in the 20th century. So that's a quiz question that nobody will ever get if they ask me <laughs> when the last, the first meeting of the 20th century. So good yeah, one. things like that. I've made the rosters of the Premier League Riders Championship. 
won some league championships. So yeah, but probably as a one-off day, the Premier League pairs was was a good one to win that. And it, to be honest with you, my career, I'm more than happy. I met so many nice people, whether it's fans, riders you race with, and you get you get it is such family. Uh, feel for everything. I'm privileged that I'm in the position I am now, so I, I, I'm still going. So I'm still enjoying myself and loving every minute of it. Okay, Phil Morris, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No problem, anytime. You have a good one. I hope you enjoyed that hour as much as I did. It was a fascinating hour, and we didn't even get as far as talking about him being a prolific TV quiz show contestant or his other life as a sandwich tycoon in South Wales, and nor did we find out his favourite flavour of sandwich. Maybe next time. Now, if you enjoyed listening, please give the podcast a rating on your app. Or if you'd like to get in touch with your own feedback, you can also contact me via the Humans of Speedway Facebook page or on Twitter at Speedway Humans. Plus, if you haven't checked out previous episodes, there's plenty to keep you occupied, including my chats with Shane Parker, Peter Oakes, Nigel Pearson, and seven-time British champion Scott Nichols among them. And in each episode, they also choose their ultimate Speedway meeting as well, including their all-time one to seven, so check those out. Until next time, stay safe and catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over a hundred social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.